Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. It's made possible in part by contributions from podcast listeners. Please consider making a contribution by going to the Donate Now tab at mpbonline.org. Thanks for your financial support. Welcome to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio, where each week we bring you an in-depth conversation with a creative Mississippian. I'm your host, Lauren Rhodes, with the Mississippi Arts Commission, and today I'm talking with C.T. Salazar. C.T. is a Latinx poet and librarian from Mississippi. His debut collection, Headless John the Baptist Hitchhiking, was published in 2022 with Acre Books. C.T. also edited Mid-South Sonnets, a poetry anthology released this summer with Bellpoint Press. They're the author of three chapbooks, including American Cavewall Sonnets from Bull City Press. C.T. is also the 2020 recipient of the Mississippi Institute of Arts and Letters Award in Poetry. He lives in Cleveland, Mississippi, where he is a reference instructional services librarian and assistant professor at Delta State University. Welcome, CT. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, Lauren. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here with you. Well, I always like to start with beginnings. And um, so let's start at the very beginning of your creative journey. Where did you grow up in Mississippi? Yeah, uh, so born and raised on the eastern side of the state, so Lowndes County. Uh, I grew up just outside of Columbus, Mississippi, so um, I don't know, like 20 minutes from Alabama, like two hour, two and a half hours or three hours uh, south of Memphis, that, that area, yeah. Okay, and do you come from a creative family? What was your childhood like growing up there? I don't, I don't know. I've never thought of us as a creative group, but I do come from like a very, um, I guess, attentive family. So uh, my my mom was in politics for all of my childhood. I was a late in life child, so I was a very quiet uh, to myself because both of my parents worked full time um, and, and definitely like a readerly household. Mm-hmm. But the arts were something that of course, I was encouraged to do, but I never really, um, and I never like really like sought it out incredibly early on. Besides mm-hmm. stuff like drawing and music, um, but the the writing came a lot later uh, in a like in adulthood. Well, and I was also wondering since you're a librarian, um, I I spent a lot of time in libraries as a kid. Were libraries a part of your childhood at all? Libraries were very like mystified to me as a little kid. Like, <laughs> like the area I grew up in didn't have a big library because we mm-hmm. were outside of Columbus. Columbus has a beautiful library. Um, but the more I became a student and then uh, working, I, like I, I got like my my real introduction to libraries was like a a part time position at a at a public library. Um, but I knew I knew about libraries as like a little kid uh, just from like proximal relations, like seeing them on TV or reading about them. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I didn't spend as much time as a little kid as I really wanted to in a library, Uh, which again, like parents both worked um, upwards of 40 hours a week. So it wasn't, Mm -hmm. it wasn't that um, it was just something like it wasn't structured in a way that we had easy access to it when I was a kid. 
Well, and you say um, you got into writing later on. When did you discover creative writing as an outlet? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I really, I really loved reading uh, and tapped into the fact that I was a reader. Uh, like junior high or high school and became really interested in reading. I read a lot of stuff that like wasn't class reading. Um, and I, and I like played around with some writing, like when we occasionally had writing assignments, I, I thought that it was fun, but I didn't mm -hmm. really start writing until I was in a uh, community college. And I was there for like EMT paramedic school, but I, oh. I took an American lit class and really, really enjoyed it. And my American Lit professor uh, told me that I should take a creative writing class, which I didn't know was a thing that you could do in college. Like, I didn't realize that huh. you could write, create, like, because I didn't have creative writing in high school, really. Yeah. So I didn't know that that was like a four credit, like, college class. So I took uh, just creative writing one um, and absolutely loved it. Like, I, I was immediately, like, enthralled by it. Uh, and I was very bad at it, too. Like the, the first things I wrote were not great, but I loved doing it. So, <laughs> uh, and, and I was encouraged to keep doing it. So I took creative writing too. Uh, I took all the lit classes I could at that little community college. Um, and yeah, and I think that's where it really started. So I was like 19 or 20 and realized oh, wow. writing. Yeah. Well, and were you, did you still end up getting your EMT degree? Like that yeah, yeah. just seems like such a big shift. Yeah, it was um, well, because when I left high school, uh, I didn't really know what I was doing in college. Like I, I honestly, like I, I did not have a plan mm -hmm. and my experience of education honestly wasn't fantastic. So I didn't really, I didn't think of education as something that was for me mm -hmm. and I didn't really know what I was doing, but I knew that I should go to college. So I kind of just like bumbled into like the EMT program and I did finish it. Mm -hmm. I, I did the clinical hours, all of that. But when I started taking the literature classes and the creative writing classes, that was when that was when I realized, like, OK, the experience I've had with education isn't what it's supposed to be. Like, yeah. there is education for me and there is learning for me. And so I think that was a really big turning point where I realized, like, I do want to go to a university. Uh, I want to keep doing this. So and and how, whatever else happened after that is just how it happened. Wow. Um, so did you, after community, community college, did you then apply for like an English or creative writing undergraduate degree or what did you end up doing next? Yeah, from from East Mississippi uh, Community College uh, in Mayhew, I transferred to the uh, MEW in Columbus. And, and that was also like a really lucky thing is that these were the colleges that were just near me. So they were mm -hmm. the most accessible. Um, so the way it worked out was um, not nothing that could have been planned. Um, but no, I, I transferred to the W and I still wasn't like fully certain that, you know, you could major in English there or like what that looked like, like what, a, what a literature degree was. Uh, but I knew that the W, uh, program just from kind of searching out their classes and from talking with the professors at EMCC that they had creative writing, they had creative writing, uh, like several levels of, of workshop classes. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I declared a major and uh, I got a, a creative writing scholarship at the W. Um, I'm blanking on what the name of their scholarship is though. It's it's named after someone, but it's, they, they give out a few scholarships and, and one to a transfer student in creative writing. Oh, neat. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
so yeah, and then I, I spent two years in undergrad at the W, um, and I got the English degree with an emphasis in creative writing. And I, I was, the story ends like the same way. Like I was at the end of that, not really knowing what, what was next, what to do. Mm -hmm. And I had kind of like come to the soft realization that like grad school was going to be next, but I didn't yeah. know what that, no one in my family like had real substantial college background. So like I, I had like no like real um, direction. Right. So one of my professors and my advisor uh, at the time, uh, Dr. Kendall Dunkelberg, he was helping me like look at PhDs because I was trying to figure out like what is the next step. And there was one PhD that I, I, I had convinced myself that like this is the one that I'm interested in. And he knew me well enough to just kind of ask like, what are you wanting to do? Yeah. Like, you, like do you want to be a college professor? Because if you get this PhD, what you do is you become a college professor. Mm -hmm. And I remember just being in his office and saying, like, I don't, I don't think so. Like, I just want, I just want to write more. Mm -hmm. So I'm not really after this for a job. And uh, Dr. Dunkelberg like shared with me that the the MEW is launching an, an MFA program. Uh, the next semester will be like the first year it's offered. And and he was very much like, I don't. I don't know what you'll get out of it, but it is two to three years of more time to write, if that's mm -hmm. what you're interested in. So, so I ended up uh, applying and going through the WSMFA program next. Well, I didn't realize that you started the same year that the, the W program and uh, the Master's in Fine Arts program launched. That is a, a pretty amazing coincidence because I, I know you from that program, and that's where I first was introduced to you and your work. Um so that just seems like the best coincidence in the world. Yeah, yeah. No, the very, like, the following uh, academic semester that I graduated was the first semester of the MFA. So I was a part of, like, the first class. Yeah. That's so again, very cool. Nothing that could have been planned by any means. And did you find, like, by the time that you were, you know, deciding to take your writing to the next level, um, were there poets that you had really you know, had you chosen poetry as your primary focus? I think so. Yeah. I, um, because I'm from also like Tennessee Williams's home community, I was really mm -hmm. interested in playwriting and like, I read a lot of Tennessee Williams and really loved what he was doing. Um, just because like how he worked the genre and how he worked the stage, I, I was fascinated by it. But as far as like how I best encountered uh, writing or just even my own understanding of the world around me like poetry was my draw and it was mm -hmm. the thing that um, it felt like it was the thing that I was the worst at and it was also <laughs> like the thing that like I, I I need to keep doing this like something about this feels like it makes sense. Mm. Um, were there poets that you were drawn to as sort of examples of or that really inspired you or um, you know inspired your work? Yeah yeah the first like the first poets that I read uh, were back at uh, the community college at EMCC with uh, my my creative writing instructor uh, Marilyn Young Marilyn Young Ford. Um, she was because she also taught like English lit British lit. So my my first like poets that I really identified with were the like English romantics. I loved John Keats, and I, and I was 
really, just really interested in like his poetics and what he was trying to accomplish. And then uh, beyond that, when I started reading like American poets, I really identified with the um, like one of the earliest modernists, the uh, Carl Sandburg from Chicago, mm. like the the self-identified people's poet, the union poet. I really liked his entire style of trying to be as unpoetic as possible and write in a language of his own group, like write for working class Americans. Yeah. And then um, as I read more around me, I really fell in love with the Arkansas uh, Southern poet C.D. Wright. Like, mm. yeah, she's one of my, I think she's in my my top five, like right now, probably still. Um, her books like Shall Cross. Um, I don't know. C.D. Wright is like one of, my, I think one of my like New Testaments, like she's one of my all time go tos. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Hi, I'm Lauren Rhodes. You are listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The Arts Hour is a co-production of the Mississippi Arts Commission and MPB Think Radio. You can also listen to the show on Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5. To have access to all Arts Hour interviews, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Hi, I'm Walt Grayson. You can now listen to the wild, weird, and wonderful stories of Mississippi with Mile Marker. Slowly, we started, you know, picking these turtles up and saving them. I'll stop traffic, grab one out of the road. And then our friends found out, and our vet would call us. Join me as we hit the roads of Mississippi on Mile Marker. We are now a full-fledged, nonprofit turtle rescue. You can listen by going to mpbonline.org slash radio or by using your favorite podcasting app. Mile Marker, a Mississippi Roads podcast. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. You're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio. I'm Lauren Rhodes, Director of Grants, Mississippi Arts Commission, and today I'm talking with Cleveland, Mississippi-based poet C.T. Salazar, whose book, Headless John the Baptist Hitchhiking, was published last year. C.T., before the break, we were talking about your time at Mississippi University for Women in the MFA program and some of your favorite poets. Um, you also have a degree in, in library sciences. Can you talk about your decision to, to pursue that degree? Yeah, of course. Um, so when, pretty much when I started the MFA, I started working part-time at a, a public uh, library. And uh, in about six months, I transitioned into a full-time role as a children's librarian. And it was kind of like these two worlds happening at once because I was a full-time uh, MFA student, and I was working a lot on that degree, and at the same time learning about how libraries work and, and trying to be a librarian. And by the time I started working, like in the first year of working at the public library, I was like, I want to, I want to do this forever. Like, mm. I want to be a librarian. Like this is it. And it was the first time where like a job made sense that like mm. the work, the work makes sense. I feel at home in a library. In a, in a way I've never felt before. So the I finished the MFA in three years, and then I worked for another year at the public library before transitioning to a new role uh, at the at the federal sector. Um, I was working as a, a senior librarian uh, on an Air Force base, and then that came with the decision, like, part of that hire was to go to library school. Like that was kind of the understanding about mm -hmm. like it was, it was in some ways it was a conditional hire. Like you need to go to library school to do this. So I, I uh, attended um, 
University of Southern Mississippi's uh, Master's of Information and Library Science, and then did an additional advanced graduate certificate in uh, archiving and preservation. Yeah, and I finished all of that in uh, 2021. Okay, wow. Um, well, do you feel like your your work as a librarian and, and that degree intersected with your work as a creative writer, as a poet? Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, they, they are um, completely intertwined. Like, hmm. I, if you ever just walk through a library and, like, try to get a sense about the order that's constructed on the shelves, that we've taken every form of knowable knowledge and we've added an order to it so that it makes sense to us. And there's just ways in which, even though my librarian brain and my writer brain are sometimes a little different, it still feels like um, to, to experiment in one is asking a question about the other. Like mm -hmm. they have that kind of relationship that's not opposed, but um, builds into each other. Well, and I imagine that as a librarian, it's also helpful to be a voracious reader and a writer because that too brings a certain knowledge that you can share with your students and, you know, the patrons of a library. For sure. Yeah. It's massive uh, lateral reading. It's, um, I don't know, maybe like the, the things that make you a good librarian are like a driving curiosity mm -hmm. and, a, and a, an ability to stumble into something. And I think that makes you a good writer too sometimes. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, well, let's switch gears a little bit. And I, I'd love to talk about your path to publishing. And I, I feel like you are someone who, um, and, you know, this may seem different as the writer versus someone who's reading your work and seeing it out in the world. But I feel like you're constantly publishing your work and really getting your poems out into the world um, in literary journals and also, um, you know, through through chapbooks, which are just an incredible path to publication. When did you first start publishing your work and submitting it? Yeah, um, it does feel different from what you've described. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I see myself as incredibly slow on getting my work out. Um, and so like the, the path to like trying to publish, I think I was trying to publish poetry for two or three years before I had a single accepted publication. Mm. And it started in like online, um, completely independent run journals that were just publishing work that I liked. Yeah. But they had no like institutional backing or they had no, they had no authority really, you know, in like the literary mm -hmm. world that loves uh, strange hierarchies. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yeah, no, I think my, my first publications came in the MFA uh, so around 2017, maybe, I think 2017 is when like my, my work started getting published. Okay. Um, but I, in general, I'm very slow. Like I'm such a slow writer. And I, I mean, you know, this just by virtue of uh, interacting with me and, and trying to get work from me that I, I take forever to write anything. So the publication process always feels very distant to me. Well, it is amazing how, you know, even through the slow accumulation of work, once you put something out into the world, it just feels like, wow, this, you know, this exists, even though no one can see all of the hours and the days that went into it. And maybe, you know, the rejections leading up to that as well. 
Um, so it's always, I know I said that, you know, it might be different from your book because I know it always is different from the reader versus the person putting, putting that labor into putting their work into the world. Um, right. Uh, sorry, not to, not to cut you off. Um, but like the, the book headless Sean the Baptist hitchhiking, you know, like how books are marketed and shared and, you know, like all of the language around a book coming out is like, you know, this is the, the new work. This is the debut book. This is a brand new poet. And what they don't see is like Headless John the Baptist hitchhiking was seven years of writing. Mm. So like a lot of the work in it, by the time the book was coming out, was so old to me that I wasn't even the same writer. Yeah. My relationship to the work had changed so much. Yeah. You're seeing almost like past selves within your collection of work. Yeah. Well, leading up to that, though, you know, you had a few a few chapbooks published. Can you talk about publishing those chapbooks? Because they're each so unique and um, so incredibly creative. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, for, first, I'm, I'm not really like project oriented. I'm mm. just very like, I don't I, I don't I hardly ever think in the realm of writing a poem either. It's just writing lines. But Eventually, I write enough where I can kind of identify connecting threads that can shape something to be more than just an individual poem. And it's poems that go together in certain ways. And then that slowly directs the editing process. And, and these become these tiny little individual standalone books. Um, and two of them were published with Bull City Press out of uh, Durham, North Carolina. And... Um, that was huge for me because Bull City is one of my favorite all-time presses. Like to this day, I read everything they publish. Like I, they've always been like one of my favorite uh, places that are putting out work. Mm. Um, and that took time too. Like uh, the first chat book, This Might Have Meant Fire, was not the first thing I had sent them. Like it, Oh, it interesting. Took, yeah, several submissions and tries. And then when Ross White at Bull City um, told me he wanted to accept this might have meant fire he he said that he wanted to accept it and then he was like but I have a really big caveat and of course I was too excited I was like yes Ross whatever you want of course <laughs> and he was so kind he was like no don't say that <laughs> for this decision uh, but he he said that he wanted to cut the book in half uh, this might have meant fire is only 10 poems and I think it was 22 when I sent it as a manuscript but as a 22-poem document, he identified that more of this would shine if less of it was here. Oh, wow. So we How began, did you take that feedback? I was baffled by it because I, I thought that what I'd already sent was such a slim book. Uh-huh. And then he said, like, no, he's got this, this thing in mind, this idea of an even smaller document, of an even smaller book. So we we started that work together. I, I took a few days to think about what a smaller book would look like from what I sent him. But we, we took the time and we did it. Uh, he, he is a phenomenal editor and he's a, an incredible, he's such a, editors are like that in that they read what you have, but they also can read into a possibility that maybe mm -hmm. you don't see because it doesn't exist yet. And, and Ross is that to a T. So his direction and his leading uh, made me an incredible like a much better writer because I, you know, poets are good at writing poems, but I have I had no practice in making a book. Right. So that was all new territory for me. And you need an an editor who you can trust and can really hold 
your vision and also the vision of of the wider scheme of the publishing world in tandem you know absolutely and that the, the work editors do is um i, I remain baffled yeah. <laughs> well you actually are an editor yourself but we'll we'll get to that later on too um well maybe we're talking all about your your work and your writing why don't we switch gears and have you read a poem for us from your collection, Headless John the Baptist Hitchhiking, and then we can move into talking about that book. Yeah, of course. Uh, this is a poem that I'll read um, because it, it's different in how it was written. Uh, this is one of the rare poems that I wrote almost as a full draft. I'm usually just so slow in writing like a line or two over a course of a few weeks. Mm-hmm. But I remember like so directly that this poem was written on my 25th birthday. Oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah. And it was after taking a long walk with a really good friend. And we were walking on uh, Plymouth Bluffs pathway. And it was June because it was late June. Uh, the path was full of these spider webs that we kept walking into because it hadn't been cleaned yet. And um, I had the I had this poem going in my head the whole time, like in the background and just thinking about it. But this is uh, mostly I'd like to be a spider web. Because in the rain, I'd look like a cracked window without a church to belong to. You could look through me and see the world in front of us. One time, my ex-lovers made a road of tongues for me. I took off my shoes to feel the song a little better and cut a note short with each step. I want to tell you how many churches I've built to praise little things that deserve more than their few seconds of existence. Like the time I opened my door, smelled hibiscus, and knew you were home. Like the time a child told me there was a God, and because he was smiling, I believed him. Mostly, I'd like to be a spider web to feel you walk through, to see if you'll take me with you, despite the spider I bring. I was actually hoping you would read that poem. And as soon as you said spider webs, I was like, oh, yes. <laughs> um, and I love knowing knowing the story behind it. Did that poem also, was that featured on Delta State's Stairs? Am I remembering this correctly? Yeah, it was um, Mississippi State University's Staircase. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, I was there very briefly as like a visiting writer, and they they printed the poem out on the stairs, which was just filed to me. But yeah, and it's the perfect time of year to read that because this is uh, walking through spider web season. Of course, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe all the time is walking through spider web season in Mississippi, actually. Um. Well, talk about your your collection, Headless John the Baptist Hitchhiking. Maybe you can start with with the title and what that means to you. Yeah, yeah. So, um, like I said, it's seven years of writing and rewriting and editing and taking poems out. Um, but where the title comes from, I was in this like really long phase of a very specific anxiety that I, I had a hard time trying to name. And I finally kind of landed on the fact that what I'm feeling is headlessness, that trying to be a Southerner in the 21st century, trying to be an American in the 21st century without any contradictions felt like a, an active kind of being beheaded, like all logic removed, all rationale is kind of out the window and nebulous. 
so once I had kind of landed on that, what I was feeling and could name it as headlessness, mm -hmm. I started like, uh, as one does Googling and looking just through like this idea of headless as a state of being, uh, of course, the internet at large brought me all of these like Renaissance paintings of John mm -hmm. the Baptist and they were all him like, you know, in the scene that everyone paints is his beheading, mm -hmm. which is in, in some ways kind of funny that like, that's how, you know, this person who supposedly accomplished so much, but what, as far as like what makes him an icon, right? Is the yeah. beheading. Uh, so he kind of became the, in some ways, like the patron saint of this book I was writing and trying to think through this feeling and investigate it more deeply. He, he was the image in my head. So then he became the title poem eventually because the, there's a poem in the book, uh, Self-Portrait as Headless John the Baptist Hitchhiking. So that's the the strange origin of the, the title and the images. And then um, as I sat through trying to like work on the book because the, the collection is a lot about faith and trying to grapple with how you could have any form of faith in Mississippi in the 21st century. And that, you know, the, the ideal believer in some ways is headless, not, not as an insult, but um, where doubt would take up space in your brain that's removed and you yeah. only have this ideal. And in some ways, the ideal American is a headless person because they don't question anything. Mm. Like the, the ideal um, member of an imperial project is not critiquing the empire. So like both of those ideals kind of worked their way into a lot of the 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 underground like logic of the poems is kind of thinking with those things in mind. Hi, I'm Lauren Rhodes. You are listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The Arts Hour is a co-production of the Mississippi Arts Commission and MPB Think Radio. You can also listen to the show on Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5. To have access to all Arts Hour interviews, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. You're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio. I'm Lauren Rhodes with the Mississippi Arts Commission, and I'm talking with C.T. Salazar, whose poetry draws inspiration from Mississippi's history, culture, and landscape. So, CT, before the break, we were talking about um, your collection, Headless John the Baptist Hitchhiking, and some of the the influences behind it, and, um, you know, religion and faith is a part of that. Was religion a part of your upbringing? Oh, completely. So, um, in a big way, I have a uh, white uh, Southern Baptist mom and a Latino Catholic father, so the the language of the King James was very much a part of our like household language. Uh, and I just assume that, you know, also being in Mississippi, it's kind of just something you're exposed to continually, like, you know, just people subconsciously say, bless your heart or, you know, have a blessed day. It's just part of our, our lexicon, I guess. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's something that like the, the entertainment and the media depicting us always get that wrong because when they depict like Mississippi and stalking, they miss all of the uh, middle English 1611 language that we tend to throw in our, in our talk. And that's always Ooh, that. Yeah. Can you give me an example of that? 
Uh, like I, you know, like I can hear like blessed be so many times in different ways. Hmm. Uh, just so many like turns of phrase where it's like, this is middle English or this is like modern English. Yeah. And it's oh, from the King James, but it's part of our everyday talk now. I had not, that had not even occurred to me, honestly, but I will, I will be listening differently um, to that as well. I, I was looking through just some reviews of your work all, you know, this book was reviewed in so many places and reviewed glowingly, I might add. Um, and I just, there was one line I'd, I'd like to read from a review that really st stuck with me, which is in these poems, the Bible is not merely transposed into our modern life, but is also a framework for a new and urgent awareness of faith where faith is not what you believe, but a way of reading the world. Does that resonate with how you wanted to write these poems? Yeah, with, without a doubt. And um, I know exactly what review you're pulling from too, because I really identified with the reader and everything they got out of it. I, a lot of the collection is not dedicatedly Protestant, Christian oriented, but it, it is interested in how we could have faith and how we could think through what else faith could give us if we had faith in other things. Like mm -hmm. if, if someone can be faithful, what, what's the best outcome? Like how, how can we achieve the state of being faithful with, with each other in different means? And, uh, you know, likewise, your family seems to be another influence in, in your poems as well. Um, when you have an idea for a poem, is it usually, you know, something that someone says or maybe an event that happens or are you writing and just, you know, it kind of springs to life on its own? It's without a doubt, like what you, what you first mentioned that like, there's so much that it's bits of conversation that stick with me. It's things that maybe they're not important. Like maybe they're not big in any means, but for whatever reason, it's just stuff that I couldn't let go of that it took on a value of its own. Like um, friends and family who have read the book have spotted themselves in it in ways that I completely forgot about hmm. the origin of, but it's just stuff that, you know, conversations or things I hear and, and that's, that sticks with me. It's, it's the little particulars. How do you feel about people who read the poems who are, are part of the poems? Is it something you like welcome their reactions or is there any trepidation in that? There's no trepidation. Um, I I think everyone has the initial anxiety of like, oh, people I know are going to know I wrote this and read it. Mm -hmm. But I think a, I think that a poet's function is to write for their community, to be with their community. So it, it means a lot when people that I know have read it and identified with it and see yeah. themselves in it, because that I think that's the poet doing the best thing a poet can do. Well, and I, I have to say, as someone who lives in Mississippi, it's really validating to read poems that you can really see Mississippi in in all of its complexity too you know the landscape but also some of the difficulties of of living here the contradictions um how much of Mississippi is is within your poems it's everything yeah, yeah. it's I've never lived anywhere else and I'm not really that interested in living anywhere else. Um, but I, I am forever fascinated with how we as Mississippians interact with each other and with the world, how we can understand our own history in a way that matters mm -hmm. in a way that can rectify and participate in restorative justice 
how we understand ourselves as our own neighbors and the things that we do to help or harm each other. I think that all of that is an entire lifetime's worth of work. Definitely. I mean, there is no shortage of material um, in this state. <laughs> Truly. <laughs> um, you love a sonnet. <laughs> um, you, one of your, I have uh, one of your chapbooks here, American Cave Wall Sonnets, um, which is just an, a beautiful chapbook. There, I believe there are sonnets in Headless John the Baptist Hitchhiking as well. Um, and you've just edited an anthology of of sonnets. What what drew you to this poetic form? Yeah, I'm, it's so deeply American. At the same time, it's not American, which also hmm. makes it more American. Um, <laughs> the, like to understand the history of the sonnet, you have to understand like all of the colonial social strata that brings it here. You know that we are writing sonnets. Um, it piggybacks on imperial power it came here with at the same time as any any form of settler colonialism came to america mm. and it's it's quick and it shows it shows how quickly things travel because i think in like 1640 i'm probably fuzzy on the year but there was a, a mexican nun soruana de la cruz who was writing in shakespearean sonnets in spanish so that she that early on had been exposed to the sonnet form and could write yeah. a perfect Shakespearean sonnet in her own language, showed how quickly we were becoming this colonial sphere. Hmm. But I, I'm interested just in the in the way that we write a sonnet and how certain people were never meant to write sonnets in English court. And now we, as working class Americans of every uh, orientation, race, and class, when we write a sonnet, we're doing work in some ways of subjugating our own power and agency. Mm. So I, I, I could talk about it for like way, way too long, but there's so much in just unpacking what, how the sonnet got here, why it was invented and what happens when we write in it today. Oh, that's fascinating. Um, I actually didn't know, you know, the history of the sonnet coming to the U S. Um, so that kind of adds a, a different layer to, to seeing the sonnet, um, on the page now yeah. um well you wrote in your an introduction to uh the anthology mid-south sonnets which is just an incredible collection of southern and deep south mid-south poets writing in whatever they conceive of the sonnet to be and you edit it alongside um casey dodd with bell point press um and i just want to read one line from your introduction to this or your foreword, which has really stuck with me, which is what a sonnet does best is offer us a moment of transformation. Um, do you, are you consciously looking for these moments of transformation in your daily life? I'm at least looking out for them in a way that poetry has oriented me to pay attention to the world because I'm a very slow writer. So I have to like remind myself that the act of writing is not just physically writing, but it's, you know, like a, a poet is just someone who pays attention. Mm. So looking and paying attention as much as I can for these things that may change me way later on. But I, I'm always open to the fact that like we're, we're an ongoing revision. Like I'm a draft of myself. Tomorrow I'll be a better draft. And, and looking for those things that could 
could transform us in the best possible ways. Yeah. Mm. That's a good question though. I'm going to think about that a lot longer. Well, I always wonder if like being a poet influences or being just, you know, a writer in general influences how writers perceive their world. And I, I think it, it totally does. Um, yeah. Well, talk about editing an anthology. Uh, what was, what was that experience? Like, you know, you said earlier that you're not an editor, but you are. <laughs> what did you, what did you learn through that experience? Yeah, no, I gained an even deeper appreciation because it, it's my first venture into any type of like editorial work. And um, thankfully, Casey was at the helm and uh, I could always rely on her to, you know, help inform my decisions and and kind of just orient me that things are going well, that this is good, <laughs> because I had a lot of doubts, um, especially when it comes to trying to handle someone else's work. And we we read so much stuff that was just phenomenal, but we yeah. we had a very specific editorial vision of a anthology that was less than twenty dollars. We wanted it to be affordable, so I had no idea. But that you know she knew from the logistics side that that meant you could only accept so many poems. The book had to be a certain dimension to mm. so. With this mission in mind, we had, it kind of guided what we could accept. Um, we read enough good work to make like five more anthologies probably. Oh, wow. And they'd all be different books. So, and that, that gave me even more insight that for every anthology, there's a shadow anthology of the work that wasn't picked. There's a much deeper landscape out there. Um, but it, it was incredible. And uh, I'm really proud of the book we made. I'm really proud of the poets that are in it. I stand by the decisions made in the book in that we tried our best. And I think we made a really beautiful thing. And it represents what I wanted to see. And it showed me new things about the South. It reaffirmed things I already knew. So it, I'm, I'm glad that it's, I'm seeing in, in small ways how it's making the rounds of other readers. And I'm, I'm glad with how other people are interacting with it. Well, it's a really incredible kaleidoscope of Southern writers. And, you know, the definition of Southern, Southern writers is very expansive. Um, and everyone has their own take on the sonnet form, which is so cool to see. And, you know, you clearly have played with the sonnet form as well and experimented within that 14 lines, is it? You know, um, apparently there's a lot of room for experimentation in, in what seems like it could be a, a restrictive form. Yeah, no, truly. Well, I, I also want to bring some light on a, a project that I know you're working on at, at um, which is to bring some light to lesser known Mississippi poets. And you've written a wonderful essay about Besmalaire Brigham and are working on a piece about Etheridge Knight. Um, why did, why did you want to talk about these poets or shed some light on them? Yeah. Uh, well, it started with kind of realizing that I didn't have any, despite being fully educated in Mississippi, all of my degrees are from the state. Um, and I consider myself a really privileged education, educated person. Like I've gone through a lot of school, but I really had no background in poets from my own state. Like there was no genealogy there. They're not nearly as anthologized as other writers, even from the South. Mm -hmm. So it started with just visiting a lot of different archives and seeing the poetry collections that were there, if there were any poets there. And it's an overwhelming amount of poetry. You mm. know, it's all, it's all these poets that, for whatever reasons were excluded from the canon 
um, a lot were very radical for their time. So they were not put on a path of like upward mobility and publishing success, but they were publishing with small independent presses that were willing to put out their work. Um, so yeah, no, it started with just trying to understand my own uh, genealogy better and see how other poets of the past have interpreted these same questions and these problems and how they've made lyric line out of grappling with very identical issues. Hi, I'm Ryder Taff, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advisory and co-host of Money Talks. Each week, we take your personal finance questions and tell you about a money topic we hope you find helpful. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. Thanks for listening to this MPB Think Radio podcast. MPB depends on support from listeners, so if you can, please contribute today at mpbonline.org.